Genesis 27, I'll read verses 41 through uh, 46. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau, as touching thee, doth comfort himself, purposing to kill thee. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, and arise, flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran, and tarry with him a few days, until thy brother's fury turn away, until thy brother's anger turn away from thee, and he forget that thou which, hast, which thou hast done to him, then I will send and fetch thee from thence. Why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do to me? And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word to us, that once again we can see the things that Christ hath done for us, and, uh, and see the pattern and how we as saints fall short of that which... Um, would lead us to a peaceful life of faithfulness in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, this morning, Lord willing, I hope to finish up Genesis chapter 27. So I want to talk about the dynamics that take place here in verses 41 through 46. Um, I will give Rebecca good marks for knowing what's going on in the household um, in terms of she gets when she understands, she appreciates what's going on in the heart of her two sons, both of them. And here in the, what we see here in verse 41 and 42, we see that she knows what um, Esau has uh, desired, what Esau desires to do, and she has full understanding of why he would desire to kill his brother. And so this is, an, we can appreciate that a mother ought to have her finger on the pulse of what's going on in the house. She ought to know what's in the heart of her children, and she will if she spends a lot of time talking to them and um, sharing, listening to what things they would have to say. We can appreciate that Christ certainly knows what goes on in the hearts of all of his people. In Hebrews chapter 4, um, beginning in verse 12, it sounds like we're talking about the Bible as the Word of God, but you can see how this morphs into Christ himself. In verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 4, we read, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Clearly, it's speaking about the word of God in Christ, him getting into our heart, him knowing what's in our heart, and him being able to portion parsing things out as to why we do what we do, why we think the things that we do, what our motives are. And it says here, thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 13, it makes it very clear that we're speaking of Christ here. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Well, who is it that we have to do with? Well, obviously, it's Christ that we have to do with. And so... Uh, Rebecca here, understanding what's going on in her house and understanding the dynamics that have taken place since her children were born, has an appreciation, and she rightly fears, I shouldn't say rightly fears, she does fear that Esau will slay 
Jacob. In verse 44 and verse 45, it speaks about his fury um, and his anger. And we can appreciate that in Genesis 27, 40, it says that by his sword, thou shalt live. That was the, I'm going to put that in quotes, blessings that his father Isaac gave to Esau was that by thy sword shalt thou take thy living. And a description of him is that he is a cunning hunter, a man of the field. So, you know, Rebecca knows the nature of her son. She knows that he possesses, let's say, the emotional um, instability to engage in something like this where he might indeed slay his brother. And as a man of uh, the field and uh, one who's mighty with the sword, a mighty hunter, he very well might do such a thing if God did not restrain his sin. And we're going to get into that in a little bit here. So um, she fears that if Esau kills Jacob, um, Jacob would die and then Esau himself would be put to death for the murder of his brother. Um, so she would indeed lose both of her sons in one day. Now, this is certainly before the law was given, but when um, Noah came out of the ark, God set forth capital punishment for the murder of another human being. And this is in Genesis chapter 9. I'll pick it up in verse 5 here. He's already told man that animals will fear man. He's told Noah that animals will fear men. And he says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 9, And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. In other words, if you have a man-eating lion, you're going to send somebody out there that's going to slay that lion. Um, will I require it? And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. So if a man is killed then the nearest, kins, his nearest kinsman, his brother, will go out and slay the individual that slew your brother. In verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So coming out of the, out of, uh, the ark, Noah is immediately told that capital punishment is appropriate for the death of man, because when you slay a man, you slay that which was made in the image of God. And that's certainly very uh, dear to God. So, if this takes place, then Esau would be put to death also. Now, one of the things we have to keep in mind here is all of these dynamics are by her contrivance. In verse 45, she says that as though it was Jacob's um, fault here, until thy brother's anger turn away from thee, and he forget that thou which hast done to him, and he forget that which thou hast done to him. You were the one who received the blessing that uh, he thought should have been for him. So it was really the issue that she put up Jacob to do this, and she even said, let the curse be upon me. But now she's saying, hey, I understand why he wants to kill you because of what you have done to him. So he received the blessing that Esau should have thought would have been confirmed upon him. So we can appreciate that her heart is troubled because really what she has done, that because of it, she might be deprived of both of her sons in one day. And she has brought all of this heartache upon herself and upon the household because of a lack of faith and appreciation of what God had told her all the way back in Genesis 25, 23, where God had told her that the elder shall serve the younger. It's interesting, when you're reading through here in verse 42, God tells us which son is the elder son and which son is the younger son, as though we might have forgotten that. Um, so God is trying to get us to help us appreciate the dynamics of the family here and that when he said the elder shall serve the younger, um, that would mean that um, Esau would serve Jacob, which won't happen if either one or both are dead. That won't happen if either one or both 
are dead. So once again, we see Rebecca working things out after the counsel of her own will and failing to trust in God. Down in verse 46, we see that she manipulates Isaac so that he will send Jacob away to seek a wife and therefore remove him from Esau's immediate reach and rage so as to preserve his life because once again, she fails to trust God. Now we sung the hymn this morning, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And I sing that with a certain amount of personal hypocrisy because I wonder really how much I trust in Jesus. The chorus is, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. The hymn has an exclamation point there. I might put a question mark. How I've proved him over and over. Well, why am I proving him and how am I proving him? I'm proving him by my lack of faith and trust in him, and yet he's proving himself to be faithful to me in spite of my lack of faithfulness to him. Then it continues, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace, to trust him more. So even in the chorus here, while the author is at one point proclaiming that he does trust in Jesus, but yet then he says to trust him more. I will need grace to trust him more because this is an issue that we all struggle with. And I would say that Christians have no trouble trusting in the Lord for the little things, and they trust in him when they absolutely positively have to. When God has pushed you into a corner and shown you that there's no way out except through him, then we will trust him. But one of the things that is true is we should trust him in all things, the little things, the big things, and the things in between. Um, but given what we see in the Bible, I want us to appreciate that this is written for our benefit, for our learning, because these people all have trouble with trusting in the Lord, trusting in the promises that God has set before him. So this is certainly something we should pray for, not only for ourselves, but for our fellow saints, that we would all trust in the Lord completely. And if we would do so, imagine what a peaceful walk we would have through this present evil world. Um, so here... Because of Rebecca's lack of faith, she is actually deprived of both of her sons because we don't see in the scripture here anyway where Rebecca has a relationship moving past this point with either of her sons again. In verse um, 42, excuse me, verse 43 and verse 45 of Genesis 27, she um, makes reference to this about how she will send and fetch him back. In verse 43, it says, Now therefore, my son, speaking to Jacob, obey my voice and arise, flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran, and tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury turn away, until thy brother's anger turn away from thee, and he forget that thou which hast done unto him. Then I will send and fetch thee from thence, why should I be deprived also of you both in one day? So she's telling him, you need to go, and I will fetch you back, but you won't find anywhere in Scripture where she actually fetches him back. In Genesis 31.3, it's actually the Lord who fetches Jacob back. In verse 3 of Genesis 31, it says, And the Lord said unto Jacob, Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. So it is God who shepherds Jacob every step of the way, and I want us to appreciate that because he's indeed shepherds all of us every step of the way. Um, in spite of what we may think about how we determine um, the direction we take, it is the Lord who leads us every step of the way. In Genesis 28, which we'll get to later, um, Jacob makes an interesting statement in verses 20 through 21. He says, 
And Jacob vowed a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. And that is indeed what the Lord does. The Lord calls him back and restores him to his father, brings him back to his father's house in peace. But I don't want you to think of this as a conditional statement that Jacob is saying, that if you do this, this, and this, then like I will worship you. What he's saying, if all these things prove to be true, the only way it could be true is that God is my God, and he is in fact shepherding shepherding me every step of the way. So I appreciate that Jacob, right from the beginning here, starts looking in that direction, that that he is indeed... um, Uh, one of the Lord's sheep. So we see that although Rebekah would uh, seek to call him back after his uh, brother's anger and wrath has passed, she doesn't. So she, because of what she has done, has suffers the consequences of not being part of his life moving forward, doesn't get a chance to meet the grandkids, you know, be... um, She misses out on all of those wonderful family occasions because of what she has done. Um, What she has failed to do as I had said, is to trust God and to believe in what God had said. And, and this is where we fail as Christians, she failed to believe all of the ancillary realities associated with a particular statement. In other words, God makes a promise, and when God makes a promise to do something, there are many ancillary promises that he will necessarily have to fulfill to fulfill the primary promise to you. It's, if I can associate it to working in life, if you're going to do a particular job, you agree to do a particular job, let's say wax the floors before Thanksgiving Day, that means that the furniture has to be moved, and that means that the floor has got to be vacuumed and the floor has got to be washed. So if I agree to wax the floors for my wife before Thanksgiving, it means I'm also agreeing to mop the floor, vacuum the floor, and move all the furniture. So the one promise means that several other ancillary promises will be fulfilled. Back in Genesis 25:23, the Lord had said to her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So failure to understand that statement and to wait for God to work in the hearts of all of the people to affect that promise out or those promises out results in her missing out in the further lives of her two sons and undoubtedly proved to be a heartache for her. If you think of all the things that are written in there about two nations coming forth from her womb, There are many promises and assurance that she should have clung to over the years. Um, As God's children, there's a couple of things that we should learn from this. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, says this here, 25 and 26 of Lamentations 3, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Rebecca should have quietly waited for God to fulfill these promises in the life of Jacob and Esau, and indeed in her life. Um, And so to appreciate these promises, it is important for us to meditate and to think upon and to ponder the words of God, to think about what is written and all of the things that are associated with any particular promise. 
as I had said, there are many promises that are subordinate to the primary promise. And so when you think on the primary promise, it ought to bring you comfort as you start to work this out in your own heart about how God would affect that particular promise because other promises would be necessitated by that one primary promise. Um, for God to tell Abram that in his seed all of the nations of the earth would be blessed we should appreciate that God will preserve the life of Abraham. He will preserve the life of Sarah. He will preserve the life of Isaac. He'll preserve the life of Rebekah. And he will preserve certain of their progeny or certain of their offspring all the way to Jesus Christ. That's a huge promise. Not, not so much um, that, but of course that Christ is going to come. But I want us to appreciate that. That simple statement, when he says a, a nation shall, shall come from you, you should know that requires the preservation of life, that you don't need to worry about um, somebody killing you and stealing your wife. So Abraham did not need to deny, deny his wife twice, nor did Isaac need to deny his wife. They never should have fallen into that sin had they trusted the simple worth, uh, words of God that God would not let anybody kill them or their spouse and that he would f to fulfill that promise. Um, Rebecca, Rebecca does not need to send Jacob away to preserve his life. She did not need to do that. And so again, I share with us that this is a common sin among all of us. This common sin is one uh, that we all struggle with and that's, to, um, that's a manifestation of our lack of faith. And it's rooted in our failure to hold God's promises in our hearts and to ponder them, to think upon these things. Um, as a wonderful example of what we should do, we see this with respect to Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Immediately after the birth of Christ, we know that the shepherds received an angelic visitation where uh, the Lord shared with them. He said, glory to God in the highest, highest peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And so they took and they ran and they went to go see Jesus lying in the manger. manger. And so we read in verses 18 through 19 that when they have come there, and all of those there, it says, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. In verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Pondered them in her heart. And so that's what we as Christians should do. We should take God's word and we should ponder these things and think upon these things in our heart. Uh, not too long after that, also in Luke chapter 2, is the occasion when Jesus' family has gone to uh, Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. And there was a large number of people in their family. And when they went to leave, uh, Mary and Joseph assumed that Jesus was with them as they departed. He was not. He had remained in Jerusalem and was in the temple where he was asking questions and uh, listening to the things that were taught. They figure out that he's missing, and so they go back looking for him, and they find him in the temple. And so I pick it up in verse 48 of Luke chapter 2. They come upon him, and when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist not, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Now, that's an interesting statement because Mary's got Joseph standing right next to her, and she just had just said to them, Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. So he's making a statement that maybe is a cognitive disconnect to her, although she should know, of course, that his father is God. But nevertheless, it puts this back in her mind. Verse 50, And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, 
and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all of these sayings in her heart. So I want us to appreciate, in both of these cases, it talks about keeping God's word in your heart as, a, as opposed to, let's say, an intellectual turning over of these events in your brain, but rather in your heart. It's in your heart where you have to ponder these, these issues. So she's going to ponder these issues of the things that he had said to her and keep them close in her heart. And this, of course, is a wonderful example of what we should all do. In Psalm 119, verse 11, which our deacon read earlier, we read, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. And, of course, Psalm 1, verse 2 talks about meditating on the law of God day and night. To meditate on the law, to um, um, keep it in your heart, um, to hide these words in our heart, is I'm not speaking of specific ordinances, but rather speaking, it's really about putting Christ in your heart. I mean, he should already be there, but you need to think about Christ. You need to think about what things he has said and what things that he has done in Scripture and extrapolate from that what things he will do in your life as well. The point of which is that to ponder the Word of God is really to ponder Christ. And so we should uh, do that and we should trust in him. So this all boils down to meditating on Christ. Um, now recall in Romans 14, 23, a very simple but broad statement is made. And so this is not a benign thing. And there the Lord tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Whatsoever is not of faith in sin. So failure to trust God really quite simply is sin. And there are consequences for that, which we see manifest itself in Rebecca's life and the dysfunctionality of that particularly family. And so this failure to trust in the Lord is a sin that really runs throughout the whole Bible as people seek to um, carry out their own will and work things out according to their own counsel instead of trusting on the Lord, praying to the Lord, seeking his wisdom, guidance, and counsel, and waiting for him to work in their lives, waiting for him to work in their lives, in their heart. Now, respecting Esau's reaction to what Jacob has done, in verse 44 and verse 45, it uses the word fury, and also the word anger. And I know everybody's experienced this emotion, but the word fury in the Hebrew speaks about a burning internal anger. And you know when you get angry, you physically get hot. The word anger in verse 45 is a word that is also um, translated as breathing outward or, or nostrils. And so when you put these two words together, you can see that he's almost like a, a fire-breathing dragon. He's so upset and he's so angry with what has taken place. And so we can appreciate why he might be angry, um, but we have to keep in mind what it says in Matthew 23. And it says in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Here the Lord says that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And I would suggest to you that he does have a cause to be angry with his brother. But the question is, how does that anger manifest itself and what do you do with it? Anger without a cause is definitely sin, and the Lord was angry. We see that in the, in the um, Gospels when we read through it, but he definitely had a right and a cause to be angry. Um, so he does have a cause to be angry, but he doesn't have one to hate. In Matthew chapter 15, the Lord talks about that. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, he says... But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, 
and they defile a man. The Lord is making a contrast about the externalities of things that we do, things that you might eat or failure to wash your hands or not. And he says, no, don't. it's not the externality, it's the internality of issues that defile the man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. So we don't have a right to move into hate. That To move into hate is to move into sin. The Lord says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, that whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Now, that doesn't mean if you murder somebody, you can't go to heaven, because we saw that you know, Moses did that, and, and David did that, and they certainly went to glory. But the issue is, did they have eternal life abiding in their heart? And the answer is yes. Moses and David both had eternal life abiding in their heart. If you do not have eternal life, which is to say, if you don't have Christ in you, then you are a murderer, and you cannot go uh, to glory. So that's that's a qualifying statement. It needs to be worked out in that way. But I want us to appreciate that Christ is not in Esau. He does not have eternal life abiding in him. But he does have this sin burning in his heart. Uh, and so he comforts himself, purposing to kill Jacob, which is the object of his hate. Now, I ask myself the question, did Rebekah ever tell Esau and Jacob about what the Lord had revealed to her? Did Esau know that he was going to end up serving um, Jacob, or was it a surprise to him when um, Abraham uh, blessed the two sons in the way that he did? Had his mother never shared the gospel with them? I would think she would have. Had she ever shared that vision with him? I don't know. But if he was raised in a godly household, he should have at some point walked away with, you know, this is God's will that things worked out the way it did. And I've got to let Jacob go because God is sovereign over all things. And so that's what a Christian, that's where a Christian should go with this, is they should immediately, you know, start thinking about this, praying on this, work through us, and end up on Romans 8:28, where it says that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So this fell out for Jacob's good. This fell out, whatever happens in your life, let's say you were, you were Esau and you are a Christian, well, it worked out for your good too that the blessing went to somebody else because that's how God ordained it. And it will be for your good that uh, that is the way it went. We should appreciate that God watches over us and shepherds our lives every step of the way. Scripture says he loves us and he proved that by virtue of the fact that he died for us and he will withhold no good thing from us. Now, that's another one of those things that you need to think through. He will withhold no good thing from us. In Romans 8:32, it says, speaking of God, he that spared not his own son, God did not spare Christ, Jesus, but delivered him up for us all. Jesus was delivered for the saints. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things. So if you sit and meditate and contemplate that in your heart, God is telling you, hey, I laid down my life for you. I gave my only begotten son, my only beloved son. Um, having done that, how could I, what could possibly compare with that in terms of what things or gifts or blessings I might give you in this life? Nothing compares with it. And having not withheld this, why would I withhold anything else from you? 
So no matter what happens in your life, again, we must appreciate it that it is for our good, that God is doing for us what he knows to be what is best for us, whether we agree with it or not. And I have lots of disagreements about what's best for me, and I thank God that he is the one giving me what I need because I don't know what I need, but I know that he knows what I need, and I know that he will not withhold any good thing from me. So the other lesson we should learn from this, which I've already mentioned, is we should wait on the Lord. If someone has abused us in some way, though God has ordained it for our good, we know that he will deal with the offender in his own time, in his own way. God will take care of that individual. In Hebrews 10, 30, and 31, it says, For we know him that hath said... We know him. We know God. It is God who has said this. Vengeance belongeth unto me, and I will recompense, saith the Lord. He's telling you that vengeance does not belong to you or me, but it belongs to him, and that you're not going to be the one who's going to recompense, but he, God, will recompense. He will take care of it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And indeed it is. And we should keep that in our minds that God will take care of it. And I don't want to be in their shoes when he does. Um, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10 says, The Lord searcheth the heart. The Lord tries the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. God knows what is in Esau's heart. Remember back in Matthew 15, verse 19, about what is in the hearts of a man? Verse 19, the Lord said that evil thoughts, God knows about that, murders, he knows about that, adulteries, fornications, thefts, fault witness, blasphemies. God knows what's in the heart of every human being. We read that in Hebrews um, 4.13. All things are naked and open under the eyes with whom we have to do. God knows what's in Esau's heart, and God will take care of that, and that is not something that we need to be concerned with. So we comfort ourselves, not in breathing out hatred towards somebody that we're going to avenge ourselves upon them, but we comfort ourselves in God's promises that God is sovereign, and we comfort ourselves in his love for us, which is always working itself out in our lives, the things that are good for us. And secondary to that, we know that God will take care of business, that he is a righteous judge, and that he will judge. Now, um, getting, also, getting back to Genesis 27 here, there's an interesting pattern that we see here in Genesis um, that doesn't necessarily carry its, itself throughout Scripture. It's gonna, we're going to find an exception to it when we look, if we consider the life of David. But there's an interesting uh, pattern here that we see in here and also in Genesis chapter 50. In verse 41 um, of Genesis 27, we read that, And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. So he, what he's saying here, what's manifesting itself in what he's thinking in his heart, is that when my father dies, then I'm going to settle the score that I have with Jacob. Then I'm going to take care of business. Now, if you flip over to Genesis chapter 50, we see a similar way of thinking with respect to uh, Joseph's brothers. In verse 15 through 19 of Genesis chapter 50, we read, And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father, that would be Jacob, was dead, they said, 
Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command us before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray you, now the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. It's interesting here. They are so afraid of Joseph that they send this message by virtue of a messenger. And um, there's nothing to indicate in the scripture that Jacob had actually said that, but they were making this up. Verse 18, And the brethren also went and fell down before his face. This is after they sent the message. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for I, for am I in the place of God. So Joseph is manifesting that which a mature Christian should manifest. In other words, God will take care of this. I'm not in God's stead to... Um, uh, avenge myself on you in terms of the things that, that thou hast done. But he's behaving as a mature Christian. But what we're seeing uh, apparently manifest here is that there appears to be a pattern, at least in Genesis, where people wait until their father has died before they settle private quarrels between themselves. Now we're going to take this to the gospel. And so it's good news for us um, that we have a heavenly, heavenly father who never dies. We have a heavenly father who never dies. No one can ever avenge themselves against us, save that which our heavenly father allows for our good. What anger and fury they may hope to vent upon us is mitigated or tempered by God's um, providence for our good. God will never let anything happen to us that is not for our good, no matter what evil we have done, no matter what... Um, Vengeance a person might contrive in their heart towards us, though we deserve it, God will mitigate it so that it will only work for our good. He'll only permit them to go only so far as to um, for our good. Now, this is particularly true in the context of how we dealt with our brother, Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 said, uh, Hebrews 2, 11 says that he is our brethren and how we dealt with our brother. Um, Isaiah 53, 3 and Romans 5, 10 tell us that we initially despised him and rejected him, and he was our enemy. At one time, we were at an enmity with God. We despised and we rejected him, and it was our sins that put him on the cross. We are guilty of the death of Christ. We are responsible for the death of Christ. And yet, in uh, John 20, Verse 11, when he's talking to Mary in the garden, he says, I go unto my God and your God, my Father and your Father. So he's telling us that we have the same Father. So consistent with this pattern that we see in Genesis here, we have the same Father, and uh, he will never die. Therefore, uh, this score will never be settled as um, Esau hoped to settle it upon the death of his father, or as Joseph's brethren feared it would be settled upon the death of of Jacob. Um, we have the same heavenly father. We are all born from above. That's in John chapter 3, verse 3, and, and chapter 3, verse 7. It says born again, but if you look at the Greek, it's born from above. It's translated born again because that's the context when uh, Nicodemus says, hey, do I have to go back in my mother's womb? So we are born from above. We have the same heavenly father as our brother Jesus uh, did. However, those that who are not born from above, they do not have the same heavenly father. 
and um, they will be dealt with according to their sins. And Jesus is the judge. Now, let's go look again at Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And I want us to appreciate what's in there. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Well, which man did God make that is truly in his image, that is the expressed image of his person and the brightness of his glory? That's Jesus Christ, the God-man. In John chapter 5, verse 27, he's described as the Son of Man. In John chapter 5, verse 27, we read, Christ is speaking and says that the Father hath given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. That authority has been given to him because he is the Son of Man. In verse 22 of John, it says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. I want us to appreciate that Jesus is fully man and fully God, and he is going to fulfill Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. He is the one who's going to fulfill that because he is a man, and therefore he can rightly judge all man. And since man has shed blood, particularly his blood, that he will judge them as a man whose, man whose blood was shed by other man, because he is made in the image of God. So I thank God that Jesus is my brother and that our heavenly Father shall never die. I want us to also appreciate that this is a sin, me murdering him, that he also hath borne on my behalf. And he has paid for my sin, killing him. And I think that's something that we should know. In addition to all the other wonderful things we appreciate in the gospel, this one's a very interesting one because it seems almost circular that I would be forgiven by him. He would pay this, the penalty of, of my sin for slaying him, uh, according to uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that he would pay for that as well. So with that, we'll say amen.